today's guest. He's a guy named Tim Campos. Tim was responsible for the productivity of the entire Facebook workforce from 2010 to 2016. One of the aspects that drives productivity for Facebook is a culture that's very focused on impact. You can't make the most productive company on the planet doing what everybody else does. And we were very good at thinking differently and creatively about how to solve problems. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars in annual revenue. And now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results, economies, and cultures. There's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this, and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen. Now, let's jump in today's show. The Business Method. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. And this was actually the bio that I got for today's guest. He's a guy named Tim Campos. Tim was responsible for the productivity of the entire Facebook workforce from 2010 to 2016. Two weeks after Tim started as the chief information officer of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg summoned him to his office for an urgent meeting. Once there, he met with Zuck's executive assistant who lambasted the company's internal calendar app and urged him to fix it. From that moment, Tim set to work designing creative tools that would help Facebook's employees easily find optimal times and places to meet. It was so successful that it helped Tim double Facebook's productivity from $900,000 per employee to $1.8 million per employee, making it the most productive company in the world, five times more more productive than most tech companies. In 2016, Tim left Facebook to co-found Woven, an intelligent calendar that helps busy professionals maximize their most valuable asset time. So today on the show, you guys, we're going to dive deep into productivity and productivity stacks, leadership lessons that Tim learned from Mark Zuckerberg, combating creative burnout, why you need no meeting days, why your calendars are killing your productivity, why business meetings actually aren't a waste of time, which is interesting. I want to dive into that. And uh, time management and the best time to get, get creative. So without further ado, Tim, welcome to the show. How are you, man? Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. And uh, I was excited to get your bio from Jonathan, who sent it over so kindly. Uh, because I've talked a lot about productivity with my customers and my clients, focused, creative time, and this sort of thing. So it's always fun to chat, go down those rabbit holes with another quote unquote expert of the field, you know, and see uh, what's working for you, what's new for you. Um, and then also opposing views, you know, because one of the things that 
you uh, uh, were going to talk about is why meetings aren't a waste of time. And I think everybody knows at this point, like Tim Ferriss, you know, argued for many years and still probably does that meetings are a waste of time. So I'm curious to get your point on that too. So where are you calling in from today, Tim? I'm calling in from Los Altos, California. Very cool. Let's just dive into the meat and potatoes, man. I want to learn about what Facebook taught you on increasing productivity. How did you get, how did you double Facebook's productivity per employee? Well, Facebook taught me a lot. Um, I mean, it was probably one of the, it was definitely one of the highlights of my life is having the opportunity to work at the company when, uh, when I did. And um, I'll start with some maybe odd things that you might not think are related to productivity, but uh, it really begins with culture. Um, Facebook is a very culturally driven enterprise. Um, so it's not about the process or the bureaucracy, the management structure. It's really about the culture. They spend a lot of time developing and um, enhancing the culture of the company. And uh, one of the aspects that drives productivity for Facebook is a culture that's very you know, focused on impact. It's, it's mission driven. So everybody knows what the mission of the company is and how their role fits within the mission. And, and they know that they're measured based on their impact on that mission. Uh, so whether you're in sales and you're driving revenue to help fuel the, the uh, focus on the mission or you're in product and you're building product that is uh, helping to, to deliver on the mission, everybody knows what they do. Um, and how that relates to the mission. And um, they know that they're measured based on the impact. And impact is a function of how much you get done, the amount of time that you have. Your productivity is essential to driving uh, your impact. And so every employee in the company knows that they have a responsibility to manage and optimize their, their, their own productivity. So that makes it easier when, when your job is to help drive productivity for a workforce. You got a very engaged customer base, people who really want that. Um, you're not you know, fighting them. You're not trying to uh, help them understand why productivity is important. Um, you know, you, you've got a willing, willing audience. And Facebook's culture was very much um, you know, a, a key part of that. Uh, another key part of that is just not wasting time. Um, you know, we'll get into this later when we get into meetings, but um, employees are very much encouraged. You know, if you don't think a meeting is a good use of your time, don't go. Right? You know, make sure that you communicate why you're not going. Like, well, I don't need to be here. You don't need my input. I'm not part of the decision you're trying to make. I'm not going to provide you additional information you don't already have. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you were sort of encouraged and empowered to do that. It wasn't a command and control structure where a meeting organizer tells you, you have to go to a meeting and therefore you have to spend time doing nothing, but twiddling your thumbs. Um, now getting into, uh, how do we drive productivity? That was all about being very creative. Um, you can't, uh, make the most productive company on the planet doing what everybody else does. You can make the least more uh, productive company on the planet successful or more productive by doing what everybody else does. Because clearly you're not that you're that's why you're the least productive. But if you're trying to become more productive than everybody else, you got to think differently. And we were very good at thinking differently and creatively about how to solve problems. From how do we get people to um, you know. Yeah, uh, through the recruiting process effectively? How do we help salespeople um, have more effective conversations with customers that are gonna drive more valuable outcomes for the company? How do we help um, make sure that uh, you know, we're able to recruit the best talent, um, all the, the fantastic engineers that we have? 
So we're very good at um, identifying what were the problems that we wanted to solve, thinking differently about them, and then building custom software to address those things. And a lot of my organization was custom next generation enterprise software, software that um, you know was built years before many things that have come to market uh, have become commonplace, whether we're talking about video conferencing or how to schedule meetings or how to recruit or how to use data to optimize a sales organization. Like we were doing this stuff um, very, very early on because we weren't waiting for somebody else to build that technology for us to be able to buy it. We were building it ourselves. I know a lot of, a lot of companies in the Bay area in Northern California, they seem really good at thinking differently. What, what made you guys better at thinking differently? What made you guys, you know, I would say one of the, uh, based on results, one of the best companies in the world to think differently. Well, I think it started with that that mission-driven culture, because what that did is it it's aligns people's objectives. It's not like you have the sales organization whose sole job is to hit a revenue target, and they don't give a shit what the excuse my language. They don't care what Sorry. the um, uh, you know what the finance organization might care about um, for hitting that target. At Facebook, the revenue target was the means to an end. The mission wasn't about revenue. The mission was about making the world more open and connected. The finances organization's job in making the world more uh, open and connected might be accounting for everything, ensuring that we're managing costs, ensuring that we're doing, we're, we're acquiring profitable business. Um, and so uh, that creates a basis for alignment between two organizations who might otherwise have conflict with each other. And the same thing held true for IT, product, um, uh, HR, infrastructure. Everybody's working towards the same goal. And we had a very strong alignment, not just to the mission, but to the leadership. You know, we had fantastic leaders, people like Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Jay Parikh, Mike Schrepfer, who we all believed in. We believed in their um, strength as leaders and their vision of where they were trying to take the company. And so that just cut out a lot of the, the uh, argument. Um, and it made it a lot easier for us to figure out what are the right things to focus on and, uh, and do. And that's been, uh, I think, a key part of uh, enabling this. The, the raw ingredients um, we're amplified maybe by one other aspect, which is Facebook is very, very good at attracting the best talent in the world. So in addition to getting them aligned, these are really amazing people. And what I found, because I started the company in 2010, it was a relatively young company at the time. For a long time, as Facebook was getting bigger, it wasn't suffering what I'd seen companies like Sybase and Silicon Graphics suffer from, where the bigger it got, the more bureaucratic it got, the worse it got. I was seeing Facebook getting better as it was getting bigger because what it was able to do is it started off with these amazing generalists, people who do a lot of different things. Um, and they weren't necessarily experts at any of them, but they were really good at doing a lot of things Two, they would get to a point where they could start to focus on specific areas. And you start to be able to, acquire and attract experts, expertise in machine learning and artificial intelligence in graphics design and in user interface and um, in uh, sales and marketing and policy. And as we were attracting more of this um, really deep and experienced and um, strong talent, we were roping them into the enterprise part of or into the culture. And part of that was 
like, you know, it's not just that you're the smartest guy, you're working with a bunch of the smartest people. So what your job is, is to teach them what they don't know about what you know, and then work together to achieve this mission, uh, this objective. And it's, it sounds simple and it sounds trite. And I worked at a company that used to think that culture was like this, uh, you know, waste of time word. It was something that I don't want to hear about it. I can't put it on a balance sheet or an income statement. I don't want to talk about culture. And Facebook taught me how wrong that perspective was and how important it is to keep everybody sort of, you know, beating to the same drum and, and heading in the, in the same direction. Do you, do you still feel like they're headed in that direction since you've left the company? Uh, well, that's a tricky question. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say this. It got harder for the company as it got bigger. Um, sure. Culture is difficult to protect. And when you start getting into an organization that's 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 people strong, uh, you start getting uh, the, the bureaucracy becomes necessary in order to, to keep things going. Um, I think it's harder for Facebook to uh, to be as, as nimble and as effective as it was uh, in years past. And um, I also think it's in some respects, Facebook has gone from it needs to accomplish the mission to it now has to take on the responsibility of having accomplished the mission. So, you know, when I got there, it was, let's make the world more open and connected. And there was just a, you know, only a few hundred people, a few hundred million people who were using the product. When I left, it had over 2 billion people using the product. And it's, um, you know, now what, two and a half, something like that. Most of the internet connected population either uses Facebook or a Facebook product. Um, so in many respects, they have accomplished the mission, a mission that they never, that sounded lofty, but they have made the world more open and connected. Well, now what? Well, now you gotta deal with a bunch of responsibilities of, well, you know, at what point do you have to censor content that is put onto your platform? And while some things might be easy, like, okay, let's not have videos of people killing each other or pornography or something like that. Um, when you start getting into issues of free speech um, and language that might be offensive to people, those are much more complicated things. There's, uh, there's a lot more gray in there. That's a responsibility that when the company was small, it didn't really need to worry that much about. Uh, there were much bigger factors. Now that it's big, those decisions have huge impact on society. And that's a huge responsibility for um, a culture that was built to go and uh, accomplish a seemingly impossible mission. Now they can do it. Uh, it's just, they're going to have to do it in a different way. And and I think that's driving change within the company that we've seen. It's, it's really interesting to see because I mean, most people that listen to this have either grown up uh, with Facebook or grown up with their, or grown through their careers with Facebook, you know? And uh, I heard this analogy about it once that um, Facebook used to be the company that was, fighting or going against the institution and now Facebook has become the institution or one of the institutions. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a crazy transition to see. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes and, but I think they're still doing a good job. Like they're holding things together. They're, they're doing, I mean, but it is a massive, massive thing that turned into nearly probably a monopoly that um, they didn't expect and, and they've got to take every day as it comes. Right. Yeah. How did you wind up working for Facebook? Uh, you know, that was interesting. So um, 
in some respects, it very much goes back to the mission, making the world more open and connected. Um, I um, uh, was introduced to Facebook through a recruiter, but the way I got connected to, excuse me, the recruiter was through people that I knew. Um, I was at a CIO event um, and another CIO had suggested to me that Facebook was uh, looking for a CIO and I might want to throw my hat in the ring. And I wasn't actually interested in a CIO gig. I was um, looking to start a company at the time. But Facebook was such an interesting company um, that I thought I would take a look. And um, so I passed on my resume and the recruiter looked at me and they're like, you don't look like somebody who should work at Facebook because you came from KLA Tencore and, and that's a semiconductor company. We're not interested in people like that. And, and I was like, well, you're not looking deeply at my resume because my I, my background is not about semiconductors. I've been at big startups that have gone big, companies like Sybase, companies like Silicon Graphics and internet startups. So that's, that's, that's my DNA is, uh, you know, high growth um, startups. And uh, so that then got them to actually pay attention to the resume. But the, the other part of this was um, the guy who was hiring me's wife was the VP of HR for a CEO that I had worked for 10 years prior. Um, Nice. And so it, uh, you know, it was this like six degrees of separation that ended up connecting uh, me to the hiring manager, and and uh, and that gave him some insight into who I was before I got there, and that that, that helped greatly. So, so that's that's what initially connected the dots. The rest of it is just, you know, uh, Facebook's a very technical environment. I am um, a fairly technical leader. I am not uh, the kind of person who just likes to push paper around or or bark orders. I'm, I I like to build and. Uh, it's a builder culture. And so that in the interview, I got to do so much fun stuff. It was, um, I really enjoyed it. I, they literally had me code like a coupon application on a whiteboard and I hadn't coded in 10 years, but I had, it, it had been so much, it was just so much fun for me to do it, getting back to my roots that uh, I think that excitement and energy came across and um, Facebook fell in love with me and I fell in love with Facebook and the rest is history. So um, I'd like to dissect a little bit further, you know, how, like the processes that you kind of implemented and used to take uh, that revenue per employee from 900K to 1. million. Like what, what were some of the key components there? Well, uh, it was started with being very strategic. So what, what makes up the business? What are the costs? Um, and what are the, uh, what is the business? Uh, so you could break down, you know, if, if you're going to look at revenue per employee or, or, pro, or, um, uh, perform um, productivity. What are the drivers of productivity? Facebook is a very human capital driven enterprise. It's it's about the people, and so you know the first decision was you know should we what should we optimize when we're looking at productivity? And that that I mean seems obvious, but we should optimize what we can get done with the workforce. One of the other side benefits of being focused on workforce productivity is that. In a culturally driven enterprise, the biggest threat to the culture is growth when you hire more people because you have to indoctrinate them into the culture. The less you have to do that, the more likely it is you're going to be successful at it. Each person represents a potential challenge to uh, the culture, much as you might try to avoid those issues in, in interviews and things like that. So that was another secondary benefit, uh, which is very mission oriented to uh, focusing on productivity. Then when you look at, okay, well, how do we break this down? Well, the number one resource at, the, at Facebook is engineering um, and product. And uh, 
engineering is actually very good at taking care of their own productivity. They do it through effective engineering. In other words, if you architect the product right, you don't have to put as much work into adding the next feature. Uh, you don't have a lot of technical debt to maintain. And Facebook just had world-class engineers. It wasn't a lot for my organization to do to make engineering more um, efficient, other than making sure that they had the right support and tools but they did represent an important part of the next phase, which I'll get back to in a second. However, then you look at the rest of the company. Well, what's the next largest resource function in, in the company is sales and marketing. Um, and you know, they accounted for almost 40% of, uh, of Facebook, maybe 35% of Facebook at the time. So if you can make salespeople more effective, then uh, you, know, you can optimize the amount of revenue that the company is uh, bringing in without having to have a lot of people that uh, do that. And this was something that was very important for Cheryl. She had seen the challenges at Google of not having the right technology for her sales organization and how that impeded um, Google's ability to grow the business in the early days. Uh, and so she had very much wanted a separate engineering function that was focused on sales and wanted me to uh, you know, help create that. That wasn't my tact because I didn't believe that having multiple engineering organizations was good for Facebook. That I felt that that would lead to conflict between, you know, these two departments that are very, very similar. And so I instead focused on co-opting engineering. Um, I recruited engineers to come work for me and help build an engineering function inside of the IT organization. And this gave us several different benefits. One is that um, it, it kept us aligned with engineering. Two, it got us some really world-class people uh, early, early on in the process. Um, but three, you know, there's a lot of technical overlap that you know, we could use the internal guts of Facebook to build large-scale systems. Like you know, when Facebook has customer data, well, what are customers in Facebook's land? They're, they're, they're advertisers. Advertisers have pages. Um, they also have user accounts. Well, pages are an entity inside of Facebook and user accounts are an entity inside of Facebook. So if we could just reuse all this stuff, then we wouldn't have to, um, you know, duplicate technology or replicate technology. So that gave us a bunch of additional technology to help us out. Plus Facebook just great technology in general. And finally, um, you know, we had a data strategy and this was probably the most interesting part of what we were doing is that, uh, a lot of what was making the company more productive was to have the right data, the right information at the right time to make um, the right decisions. For sales, um, and I can do this for every function in the company, the issue they had was, well, what customers do we need to talk to? We know that if we talk to customers, they spend more money with us. That's, that's good. So in some respects, we could talk to anybody, but if we talk to the right customers, they are the ones that are most in need. So the Delta is going to be even bigger and we'll spend better time on, on them. Well, how do you figure out who the right customers are? It's a data question. How do we tell them something interesting? I mean, if I'm Coca-Cola and I'm this, if you go back into say 2010, 2011, Facebook wasn't a product that people understood how to advertise on. It wasn't considered a good advertising product. Google was considered a good advertising product. So you'd have companies like Coke or BMW or who, you know, they had these large fan bases on Facebook, 75 million fans for Coca-Cola. 
I had no idea what the heck to do with it. Um, it was just bragging rights for Coca-Cola to say we have the largest fan page on Facebook. But so what? What did that mean? We helped give that meaning. We created um, internal data products that sales could go and talk to Coca-Cola to say, well, let me tell you about your 76 million fans. Let me tell you the music that they like to listen to. Let me tell you, um, you know, the demographics of, of them. Let me tell you how that's evolving. Or for BMW, let me tell you, you got a lot of people that have BMW as an aspirational brand. They can't afford your car, but they love what you represent and what you mean. This changes marketing strategy on Facebook. And so all of a sudden we started to be able to help customers not only understand how to spend money better on Facebook, but really just how to spend money better. And that made them loyal. That made them want to spend a lot of money with Facebook. It helped build very rich strategic relationships. And all of a sudden, you know, just the relationship between Facebook sales and customers just changed dramatically. So ultimately what we were doing here is finding like where are the right places to fish and, and to uh, optimize then coming up with like a deep understanding of how to optimize what is this business trying to do and how do we really transform it and change it and then coming up with um simple to produce but highly valuable uh you know tools and insights that would change the nature of how that business was done and you do that over and over and over again and you can have a really transformative company did this for sales did this for recruiting did this for physical security for facilities for finance for um, hr uh, and you know over and over again we we're able to find ways to help make the company make better decisions for whatever it is it was trying to do um, and to automate those decisions for whatever it is that it was trying to do in a way that helped uh, over time significantly increase the uh, productivity of the company it's incredible, man. Um, I want to dive in now to the some of the leadership lessons you learned from Mark Zuckerberg. I know, uh, I think I was reading a story on um, how it kind of changed the way that you saw the world from from those leadership lessons. Do you mind diving into those? Yeah, so he's, um, I mean, as I said earlier, Facebook has some of the, the best people on the planet working for it, even today. And how and why do they have that? Well, there's a leadership lesson in this. Um, how do you lead them? How do you inspire them? There's a leadership lesson in this. Uh, and a lot of this does go back to Zuck. Um, when I first was being interviewed at the, at the company, my question when I went to interview was, with uh, Mark Zuckerberg was whether the guy was just lucky or smart. You asked him that? Uh, basically, I mean, in maybe more polite ways, but yes, I, <laughs> okay. I did. I, 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 I want to know, um, you know, how did, how did you create what you've, what you built here? And what I learned through that conversation was both. Um, he is an extremely well-read, uh, learned leader. Um, you know, when he makes a decision on something, he does not make the decision, you know, absent of information. Um, it's not that he's not capable or willing to make a gut call, but he doesn't rely on that as his primary way of making decisions. He, he'll research things. He'll understand it. He's, he's um, you know, very thoughtful about stuff like that. And he'll spend the time to understand those decisions. Um, and so when he makes decisions, he makes very well-informed decisions. Now, to enable that, he can't do that for everything. So another key thing that he's really, really good at is identifying what is it that he wants to and is capable of being good at. 
And for everything else, go find the best people in the world that he can to run those things. He never wanted to run a sales organization. That's just not in his DNA. It's not what he likes to do. It doesn't mean he doesn't understand the importance of sales or the need for sales, but it's just, that's not what he's going to do. So what does he do? He hires Sheryl Sandberg in 2008 to go do that. And arguably somebody who could be a CEO of a much bigger company um, than Facebook was. Um, so he was able to attract her to bring her uh, into the company and to um, you know, empower her because he does not believe that if he knows something well, he doesn't, first off, he doesn't, if, if he wants to delegate something to somebody, he wants the best person in the world to do it. And then he doesn't want to help, have to tell them how to do their job. And he doesn't need to, if he hires the right person, he needs to empower them and that's it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the other thing is that, uh, you know, as you do this over and over again, you start to build up a very diverse team uh, by nature of what the focus is since his, emphasis was basically bringing people in to do the things that he's not good at if he's good at one thing and then he needs somebody who's really good at finance or we'll hire a really good cfo really good chief operating officer really good chief counsel really good heads of engineering um, really good heads of design you know with time you start ending up with a bunch of people that have a very dis different skill set that all complement each other and then what he was probably the third lesson is just how he was able to get everybody aligned around the vision of what it is that he was trying to do. And it wasn't because he was a consensus driven leader and let's get everybody to agree. He didn't really care about that. I mean, he did care about having alignment, but he didn't care so much if everybody agreed. He cared if a decision was made and, and was executed on. And he cared if the right decision was made, but he can make that decision better uh, if he's got a diverse team around him. And if he's clear about what decisions he's going to make and the, for the decisions he's not going to make, who's going to make those decisions. And what's the North star? What's the reason for the decision? What's what are, what are we trying to accomplish? It goes back to what I was saying earlier, the mission, the purpose, why do we exist? Why is Facebook in business? What is it trying to accomplish? And you know, it was just amazing to see that in action because it, while it sounds simple, in reality, if, if you're a leader of a moderate to large size organization, you know, people are complicated. It's, it's hard to meet their needs emotionally and intellectually. Uh, and Zuck was able to somehow stitch all that together in a way that created a highly performance organization. Um, and it was just an amazing thing to be a part of and to, and to see. Any idea on how, what those traits were exactly that helped him blend those two things or how he got those? Well, I've had a chance to meet his, uh, his sister and parents um, and or one of his sisters and his parents. And uh, I do think that some of it is family um, and sort of values that were instilled uh, in him on, on the family. But I think another side of it is, I mean, he's a very smart individual. Um, he is, it's, he's, you know, he gets a bad rap for being a robot, but he's not, he is emotional. He cares, but I think that he's got a little bit more control over his emotions than many of us do. Um, he's not, he's not driven by that. He's able to sort of, you know, park that when necessary and feel those emotions when it's important. But when it's, he's making a tough decision to try to avoid letting the emotions drive the decision. 
And so I think it, it allows him to be more principled in his uh, leadership. Uh, so you have this raw intelligence, this ability to, um, you know, make, uh, to, to sort of box the emotions, um, you know, so that they don't uh, paralyze you or cause you to make um, uh, ill-informed decisions. And then I think the, the, the last thing, which I absolutely saw with him, is he's got a curiosity about him. You know, he doesn't walk around believing that he knows everything. He's always looking to learn. And if you can tell him something that he doesn't know, or if you can ask him a tough question that he's not prepared to answer, he actually likes it. He, it's, it's rewarding for him. He finds that challenging and interesting, and he's not um, put off by it. He's, he's not fearful of those types of things. And I think that's also really rare. I think a lot of us feel comfortable when we have confidence in what we know and in, in the decisions that we're making. And, and, and when we're put into a situation where we're not as confident, it can be really easy to uh, not want to share with everybody that you don't know somebody or uh, don't know something. Um, and I just found with him, he's, he didn't seem to do that. He was quite comfortable letting uh, the company know that there was a decision that he, he didn't know what the right thing to do was yet. Um, and, uh, and so th that not only engenders uh, trust, because you kind of understand where your leader is coming from, but it really demonstrated something you wanted to replicate. So when I would lead my organization, I would, you know, I want to lead things kind of like Zuck does. I mean, try to empower my team more and make it clear what our organization's mission and purpose is and how that ties back to the rest of the company. And let me make sure that we're focusing enough on culture for the people that we're hiring and, and helping them get, you know, indoctrinated and excited about the culture that we have, uh, not just within the company, but within my organization. You just want to replicate these things and it works. It works really, really well. It makes complete sense. Now, one of the things you talk about, Tim, is combating creative burnout with a better organization. And I've seen this a lot in the entrepreneur world. Um, I've been burnt out of two businesses just because I tried to work so much. Um, I've seen a lot of people do that same thing, especially right now. You know, we're in the middle of this pandemic and uh, the economy isn't that great. A lot of businesses are low on cash and they're just working harder, 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 harder just to try and either bring in cash or keep the business alive and people are burning themselves out. So, so what are your tips on, on managing that burnout with organization? Well, uh, first off, I think what you just highlighted, um, with what's going on today, uh, particularly as people are working from home, really gets to some of the core of the issue. Um, you know, with productivity isn't just about maximizing something. It's not maximizing the amount of time that you spend on your business. It's optimizing it because there's such thing as too much. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a personal anecdote. So, um, we're doing this over zoom and I spend a lot of time on zoom now. Um, and in the late March and early April, when I was, my family had to shelter in place and I had to conduct my business entirely out of my home office. Um, you know, I just shifted everything to zoom meetings and I would be doing zoom meetings for hours and hours on, on a day. But I found that I was getting more tired, even though I wasn't, necessarily working more hours 
I was just getting more, more exhausted that sitting in front of a computer and staring at the same screen all day long when I'm interacting with somebody versus getting around, walking, moving my hands, uh, going outside for a coffee, and having conversation that way. Uh, it was just exhausting. And I learned with time that there's just only about, for me, five hours a day of Zoom that I can do. Beyond five hours, it's too much. And no matter what the sixth hour of Zoom is about, it could be the most exciting, valuable thing for me to spend my time on, it will be less effective because I spent five hours before in other Zoom calls. And so I really gotta manage that. I gotta make sure that I'm not spending too much time in Zoom. I've already known this just for meetings in general, like meetings uh, as a leader are how you get a lot of work done. You spend time with people, you listen to their issues and what they have to say, you talk about the objectives and what issues are getting in the way of achieving objectives, you figure out ways to solve those things. Those uh, events are productive and helpful and if I don't do them as a leader, well, then it's hard for people to get aligned and make decisions and execute and get things done. But at the same time, if I was spending 40 hours a week in meetings, I was ineffective. Uh, I found that I needed at least two hours a day, at least, of uninterrupted time to just do work, whether that's email or prepare presentations or follow up on action items or whatever. I needed that two hours of unstructured time. And if I didn't get that, then no amount of additional meetings was going to help me. Uh, so I think a big part of burnout comes from over indulging in something, whatever it is you're, you're doing and not getting balance. Even with my own company, I put a lot of time into woven. I, I love what I do and I love the company that I've created. Um, and it's, but it's easy to spend too much time on it. I find when I force myself as I did today before this podcast to you know, take 45 minutes, sit down, have lunch with my wife, um, felt so much more refreshed coming into this because I had just that brief amount of time to talk about something different and not talk about the company, talk about our daughter, talk about the beautiful temperature, the weather outside. Um, and, you know, creativity in part is the, comes from the cross-pollination of ideas. So when you get micro-focused on one thing, you're not bringing in those additional sources. Uh, on top of that, exhaustion comes from repetitive tasks, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. So when you're not mixing it up, you're not, you know, fleshing it out. We even see this in agriculture, right? I mean, one of the first things that they learned was don't plant the same crop on a, in a plot of land forever because it will suck the same nutrients out. You got to mix the crops up um, every couple of years to sort of, you know, retail the soil and, and, and allow it to sort of rebuild with the nutrients. It's the same thing. This is life. We need variety. And so you can do too much of a good thing and optimizing it is about spending the right amount of time enough to make the difference, but not so much that you over allocate yourself, uh, exhaust yourself or over consume something. Uh, and I think that's a, a key way to address burnout. So now working from home, you, so you said five hours of zoom, um, a couple hours on miscellaneous kind of open tasks and then uh, any other time work time or is that are those your seven hours per day? Well, um, I have personal objectives uh, in terms of how I want to spend my time. My uh, uh, my top 
three uh, objectives in terms of uh, time allocation. One, I, I want to spend a lot of time on product. We're very product-driven organizations, lots of product decisions to make. So anything that's product-related is good time for me to, to spend. But uh, marketing is also important. We're growing as a business. And the more people that know about Woven and what we do, the more that we're able to, uh, to grow. So I need to spend some of my time on uh, marketing people, uh, which uh, I would say is a mix of check-ins with the people that we have uh, and recruiting the people that we want to have. Um, both, both those things together um, you know, make up the, the third major bucket of my time. So I want the three of those together to represent you know, about 65, 70% of my work hours um, of what, I, what it is that I'm trying to do. And, um, and I track these things religiously. It's very important for me to know how much time I'm spending each week. And when I see that I'm spending too much or too little time in a particular area, that's a signal to make an adjustment, reschedule something or, you know, look at where it is that I'm allocating my time and uh, look at what, what changes I can make to achieve those objectives. What, what are you using for tracking? Is that woven? I, I use woven. So woven, uh, woven takes, basically we, we take the calendar, which is, you know, a decent product. It solves problems for us, but it's incomplete. We complete the calendar. We make it do all the things that it doesn't, but should, you know, starting with basic things like scheduling. Calendars don't actually help us get meetings on the calendar. Um, we have to use email for that, but Woven, we've built technology to make it really easy to schedule meetings with other people. But uh, the mission of the company is to help people spend time on what matters most. So part of what we do is we make it easy to describe your events. So for me, Woven understands when I'm working on product versus marketing versus recruiting or check-ins. Um, and then it gives me little analytics. I've got a little dashboard next to my calendar um, all day long that tells me how much time I'm spending on um, what priorities for this week. And it's just a constant reminder as I schedule or allocate new time where it is that I should be uh, putting my time towards. Uh, so it's easy. It doesn't take me hardly any time to track the information or get the information from a reporting perspective, but it's impactful. Uh, in some respect, it's kind of like a Fitbit where all you have to do is put it in your pocket and, and uh, it'll remind you, oh, you haven't walked 10,000 steps yet. It's Woven's doing the same thing for me. Is that integrating Google Calendar or is it separate? Oh, we're fully integrated with uh, both Google and Microsoft. So the, the basics of calendaring, of having an event that goes into a database that other people can you know, get free busy information that those that's well solved by Google and Microsoft. We don't need to fix that. But um, scheduling those events um, is not addressed by Microsoft and Google. So we solve those problems, um, you know, allocating the understanding what those events are and making it easy to create them. Microsoft and Google don't do anything on that front. We do. Um, keeping track of how much time you're spending on what priorities. Uh, again, that's not something that they do. That's something that we do. So we take the calendar and we complete it. Makes sense. It makes sense. Um, tell me about no meeting Wednesdays. What's that about? Well, this is actually a calendaring optimization. So, um, you know, for me, I mentioned I need two hours of uninterrupted desk time in order to um, uh, be productive in a, in a particular day. Um, now that's for a manager, right? Uh, or a leader. But if I was a software engineer, I would need more. Um, you know, if I go and I take the software engineers that work for me and I have, you know, 
a bunch of 30 minute meetings throughout the day, anytime that they get into the zone of coding, they're going to get, you know, they're, they're going to lose that momentum. They're going to have a context switch and it's, um, it's going to be costly. It's going to take them a while to come back to where they were in that, that level of productivity. And this is not just something that's true about software engineers. Any role that requires focus, there's a, there's a hurdle that you have to get over to get into that moment of focus. For some people, it's longer than others. For some roles, it's more involved than others, but it exists. And the point of what Facebook realized is that we were basically fragmenting up our calendars and it was causing an engineering productivity issue. And so what we wanted to solve was let's free engineers from having to be bothered by product, design, sales, you know, uh, leadership, any kind of meeting by just saying, we're not going to have meetings on Wednesdays. So we'll clear the calendar. And that gave engineers eight hours of uninterrupted time um, for which to do their jobs and everybody else. Um, and, you know, it was very, it was successful in its results. It's difficult to maintain um, because it doesn't take long for somebody to, um, I don't want to say cheat, but um, to violate you know, the, the rule and it can cause the whole thing to, to break down. But, um, and there's reasons to violate. Like if you have to meet with your, you're in sales, you have to meet with the customer, the customer doesn't honor a meeting Wednesday. So, and that's when they want to meet. Okay, then you got to meet now on a Wednesday. Well, it's not much further for than something to happen. Like, oh, we need to have an engineer in this conversation and the only day that they can meet is on a Wednesday. Um, so it's, it's a difficult ideal to hit, but it ultimately comes down to calendaring optimization, which is that for many people, uninterrupted time is very valuable and you don't want it fragmented by, um, by meetings. And one of the problems with our calendars is they're not built to solve this problem. They are built to share and allocate when I am free versus when I am busy. And they don't care like if I am free with, you know, right next to a, the next meeting that is going to take me 30 minutes to drive to, um, or if I'm cutting up my two hour desk time of, of two hours of uninterrupted time, it doesn't care. It doesn't know that it's not that smart. And so this is one of the things that, you know, we've tried to address with woven is to introduce things like buffer time um, where you can teach the calendar to honor um, the separation between events or availability windows that I'm not going to make all of my time available to you just because I'm free. I'm only going to give you a portion of my time. You can only schedule meetings with me between say three and six o'clock in the evening, but the rest of the day is my time. Uh, we've built these things into our system to help um, address those problems. Very much inspired by the same uh, principles that led to no meeting Wednesday. When do you think is the best time to to be creative, Tim? I, um, I I've been working a lot with doing the deep flow work, uh, deep focused work in the morning time. Turn my phone off, and that's what a, a lot of people. It seems like it works for them. What's your what's your schedule around that like? Well, I think everybody's different. Um, you know, I think some people are most productive in the evening. Um, some people are most productive first thing in the morning. Um, I myself am more of a a morning person. I find that if I want to get a bunch of things done, it's better for me to go to bed early and wake up first thing in the morning and do it. I'm fresh. 
I have How more energy. What, six, seven o'clock. Um, okay. Yeah, but um, the uh, I will share some data with you though, that we know we've we've got in, in woven about 145 million events in our system, which allows us to do some high-level analysis of like uh, how do people meet. Um, and one of the things that we've learned through this is that when we bin up, when does the day start? What's the first meeting that people have? We were trying to answer the question in our product, you know, does, do companies work nine to five, eight to six, seven to seven? You know, what's the, what's the time window that we should define for working hours? And so we started looking at, well, when does the day start? When does the day end? And we found a very interesting pattern. You would kind of expect, you know, like a, a bell curve, like a normal distribution where, um, you know, more people would meet towards the middle of the day and less people would meet on the ends of the days. And then from that, you could start seeing when does the day start? And when does the day end? Well, it turns out that there is a very strong bias in human behavior away from morning events. Um, people don't meet uh, that often at seven or eight in the morning, but they are quite um, likely to do uh, evening and late evening events. So six, seven, even eight o'clock. So when you look at that curve, it's shifted. There's still a peak in the middle of the day. Um, peak hour is actually 11 o'clock, but um, it ramps up very quickly and it spreads out. Um, it has a long tail for the rest of the day. The key point is that if you're trying to protect your time or to do something in isolation, like your work time or creative time, the morning is the time of the day that you are least likely to get interrupted by anybody else, whether they're in your company or with or outside of the company. It's a time of the day you most likely have control over. Uh, and you combine that with the fact that it comes immediately after sleep. And we can all control, maybe not exactly when we get to sleep, but how much we, we can control, we can control me what get up, right? That's the alarm clock. You have a lot of control over that. I find that the morning is the part of the day that offers the most, um, you know, the best and most consistent time um, for doing anything that is has a complex task. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I agree. I agree. But it also, like you said, it depends on the personality of a person. Some people like to work all night long, right? My co-founder is one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm always fascinated at that. I, I've, I've done it before, but um, sustaining that over long periods of time is really... I, I don't know if it's the healthiest thing for a human to do it over long, long periods of time. But well, certainly the you know the the data suggests that sleep is an essential part of longevity. And uh, yeah. and when I was younger, the uh, the word was that uh, you know the the most efficient way to um, increase your life is to sleep less. Uh, the idea being that like, you know, there's a finite amount of time you're there to live and sleep is taking away from that finite amount of time. So if you could figure out how to just sleep two hours a day, you'd have all this part of your life back. That's assuming that there's no relation between sleep and the length of life, which is exactly not true. Um, right. Uh, you know, there's so many healing aspects of sleep. I personally have a lot of trouble with it. It's, it's difficult for me to, to sleep myself, but, uh, 
uh, it is a, an ideal. It's one of the most important things for me to try to get good, high quality sleep. Now, I know like we were talking about a lot of people are working from home now and you have some recommendations on software and apps and a stack of uh, things that can help people optimize their, their productivity levels working at home. Well, I think that um, for one, there's, there's a few interesting nuances to working from home that are worth paying attention to. There's the obvious one, which is, you know, how do you communicate? So video and having the right video conferencing technology makes a huge difference. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's the, the, the easy one. I actually think the more, most interesting one is one about um, uh, time uh, and how time allocation. And I'll get to that in, in a second. Um, for my company, there's a small set of tools that are essential. They, they are our future of work without them. Like things just don't get done. You know, one is Slack that, you know, Slack has optimized our ability to communicate with each other, um, regardless of where people are. Um, second is zoom. Um, and we don't just use zoom to have point to point meetings. We, because we're not in the office together, we use, uh, a zoom portal. Uh, to connect. Um, it literally is our office video conference um, unit. It's, it will turn on automatically at 8.30 in the day and, and go until 6.30 at night. And throughout the day, people can hang out on that Zoom as a way of connecting with each other, either for work-related stuff or for casual conversation. Um, and uh, it serves as that sort of water digital water cooler um, point. Um, That's cool, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll do lunch together um, on, the, on the Zoom portal. Oh, nice. um, so that I think is very valuable. But the issue of time is really important. The biggest problem you run into when you have people working from home is boundaries, right? So if you work in an office, you have to leave your home, get in a car or public transportation or ride a bike or walk to go to the office. And usually it takes, you know, if you're lucky, 10 or 15 minutes, and if not, it can take, you know, a couple of hours. But it serves as a boundary, a, a separation uh, between your home life and your work life. And so you go to work. That's a, it's a conscious decision. And you have a little bit of time to transition from home to work. When you're working from home, the boundary is as simple as a door. And in some cases, people don't even have that because they may use their kitchen table or they may have a desk in their bedroom. So, um, so you really start to eliminate the boundaries between work and, and, and home life. The problem with that is that without those boundaries, um, you, know, you can't really effectively balance you know, work versus home when work is being done in the home. You have to be much more deliberate about it. And this is where I think time tracking tools become very important. Like how much time am I spending doing whatever it is that uh, my job is? Um, and in addition to Woven, I talked a little bit about how I use Woven and I do a lot of time blocking to try to you know, get a full accounting for my time. Um, things like rescue time, um, you know, which is a little clock that basically runs on my computer and keeps track of what apps I'm using and how much time I'm working. Um, they complete out the picture of how much time I'm putting in every single day. And you really need to have boundaries. You need to create this separation for yourself. 
and some simple things that people can do that they're easy to describe, hard to agree to do, but when you do them, you find, oh my gosh, like I, this has like restored some sanity in my life. Um, you know, it's just creating these little reminders to either take a break or to like stop. You know, at the end of the day, it's now happened. It's now 6.30. Stop. Stop working. Go, not just home because you're already home. Leave the room. Go interact with another human being. Go make some food. Go exercise. Go do something. But the calendar can serve as a reminder because it is this dimension of time. And time is what matters. Time is where uh, you can, uh, you know, get over allocated or, or, or spend too much of um, something here. So you need a, a, a time-oriented tool to help with uh, you know, reminding you what, where it is that you wanna be spending your time. Makes sense. Tim, this is all incredibly impressive stuff and I'm so grateful that uh, you came on the podcast to share your story. I really appreciate it. If the listeners wanna learn more about what you have going on and learn more about Woven, where's the best place they could do that at? Uh, we are, Everywhere where you can search, <laughs> so just search for Woven. Uh, our website is woven.com, and there's a ton of information there about the product, some videos of what we do and how to use the product. We're also on the iOS, um, Windows, and Mac app stores. Um, again, you can just search for Woven, and that will get you connected to the product. And we have a, a downloadable version of the app um, for uh, all of those platforms. And, uh, you know, you can also find me on uh, Twitter. Uh, my personal handle is tcampos or follow uh, Woven app. And, you know, we're always posting updates on what's going on in the world of productivity there. Awesome, man. Any final words before we wrap everything up? Spend time on what matters most. You know, there there's only go. 24 hours in a day. And it's the one thing that we all have the same amount of, uh, which is time, time in a day. Uh, the thing that really differentiates us as human beings is how we choose to spend and allocate time. It's the most precious commodity, right? More Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. All right, Tim, thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.